This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Jason Kelly. We're here every day bringing you the latest news from the world of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Bloomberg Business Week reporters and editors. Not to mention our 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio. We are live from the Charles Schwab Impact Conference. It is the industry's largest gathering of independent financial advisors. We are in San Diego, and this is Bloomberg Radio. All right, well, just a few minutes ago, we were talking about WeWork, and, you know, we've been talking so much about the private world, the public world, the perfect guy to talk to us about this. Lawrence Calcano is the chief executive officer of iCapital Network, based back in New York City. In fact, just down the street from Bloomberg headquarters, I believe, Lawrence, but here with us in San Diego at the Charles Schwab Impact Conference. Great to have you with us. It's great to be here. All right. So help us solve this riddle of the public versus private markets, because you are in the business of essentially helping people get into the private markets uh, as investors. It's a place clearly people want to be. But what's the disconnect between valuations right now? Let's start there. Well, look, I think um, I'll speak, first of all, as we're here at the Schwab Center, where there's a lot of registered investment advisors, a lot of people that want access to alternative investments that have just not had that ability over time. And there's a number of impediments. But, you know, when you think about the why to your question, I mean, there are uh, historically, and you've written about this whether you're looking at a 20-year, 10-year, 15-year you know, point of view, the private markets have really outperformed the public markets. And, and even prospectively, as we look at what is likely going to be compression in returns across all the asset classes, um, you're still looking at private equity you know, with a double-digit return. The expectations for the market, KKR just put a piece out on this with Cambridge, that looks like the public markets might be sort of going from 12 to 6%. And so, if anything, while the expected returns... In terms of returns? In, in terms of returns, expected returns are expected to be down across the board, mm. but actually the differential between private markets and public markets is increasing, despite the fact that private markets are expected to come down a little bit in return. They're still the only double-digit return expected out over the next five years. And does that just... I mean, in terms of the private market size, does that just continue to grow going forward? Look, the, the public market's the one that's been shrinking, right? So yeah. We're, We've half the number of companies in the, in the public markets. There are 4,000, 3,500, 4,000 companies. You know, there are 200,000 private companies with, with EBITDA in excess of $25 million. So if you're a person looking to invest in growth and you're not accessing the private markets, you're going to struggle to find that whole mid market space, right? Yeah, the, the mid market, you know, that, that next generation of growth. And you were, you were re- referencing WeWork and so forth. And so if you look at the the life cycle of WeWork's valuation, if you were not a private investor in WeWork, and, and some of the early private investors have actually made a lot of money yeah. despite what's happened to that Yeah, company. Jason, he's talked about that a lot, that if you were, you know, in some of these investments, you're in there Peloton. early. I right. Mean, Peloton's Peloton, a Peloton that's the other that. one. Yeah. Uber, actually, Lyft, that's the all of these about. companies have generated massive returns for their private investors, Yeah. And, and it's been a mixed bag, if not a bad bag, if you will, on the public side. All right, so let me turn it around a little bit and ask you the question that I know a lot of people have, which is, Yes, but like there's more risk, there's maybe less transparency and in the public markets I have sort of the the power of the market working with me. I'm going on less information if I'm investing uh, in a private company. How do you overcome that hurdle? You know, it reminds me of 
way back 15, 20 years ago when people used to make the decision, should I buy stocks myself or should I put them in a mutual fund, right? right? Because that mutual fund manager has got uh, you know massive resources to go out and investigate, to do the diligence, to really do the work that you as maybe somebody who has a different job for a living would struggle to do. I think that same thing is true today, which is if you want to be in the private markets, you've got to pick the right managers sure. and let the managers do the work. These these people are in business. They have massive resources. They're digging deeply into these companies and figuring out how to actually not just buy low, sell high, which is the public mantra, but actually buy low, make a lot of changes. It's the ultimate active asset class. Make a lot of changes and then hopefully sell it as, at a higher price. How do more and more investors, though, get access? Certainly if you're an accredited investor, yeah. piece of cake. But for the majority of retail investors, they're squeezed out. It's actually not such a piece of cake, Carol, for the for the uh, high net worth investors. In, in fact, it's, it's really the premise of what we've built our business on, making access to these investments much easier for the high net worth advisor. This asset class was was really built for institutions. Yeah. And so breaking down things like the minimums, most of the minimums are five or $10 million, which puts the asset class out of reach for most people. Right. So we create vehicles to make that lower. Access to funds, most people don't even know what funds are So are, are you bundling and so letting piece, people buy a piece in, or is Ex that how you're doing Exactly, yeah. we're aggregating high net worth investors into one vehicle, and then we become one investor to the fund. So to a fund, we look like an institution, to high net worth investors, we look like an opportunity for them to build a diversified portfolio. But is this going to be alternative assets really ever going to be potentially really opened up to the broader market? Where's, when does that access happen? So if that's where the returns are. I think it's going to—it's starting to change. So the SEC just put out a request for comment mm -hmm. and asking people in a very wide sort of list of folks contributed to, you know, what should we do about how we define the types of investors that can get access to this asset class um, and, and how should we structure going forward so that the people that you're describing actually have a fair chance to invest in the asset class. That, that will take, a, that'll take a, a while. It's right. a process, right? There'll be multiple common periods, I suspect. So years? I think it's going to be a couple of years. But I think the reality is, turn the TV on. What do you see? 60-40 becoming 50-30-20. If, if, really, if that's really going to happen, mm. you've got to find a way to give people a, a fair chance to invest. Because right. I, I would argue to you that historically, individuals have not had a fair chance to invest, which is what we're trying to solve. And that's, solve. that's what I'm getting yep. at, because I agree with you completely. All right. Yeah. Great to catch right. up with you uh, here on the West Coast. Lawrence Calcano, Chief Executive Officer of iCapital Network, based back in New York City, here with us at the Schwab Impact Conference today. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week live from the Charles Schwab Impact Conference. It's the industry's largest gathering of independent financial advisors. This is Bloomberg. All together now. All together now. So altogether now, exchange-traded funds, they have swelled into a $4 trillion juggernaut uh, over the past quarter of a century. Many asset managers, though, say the industry is entering a new phase of competition and oversaturation. Uh, Jason, you and I talked about this. This was a story recently in the Wall Street Journal. So let's see what our next guest has to say with us. Back with us is Ed Rosenberg. He's senior vice president, head of exchange-traded funds for American Century Investments, a powerhouse. And he joins us on site at the Charles Schwab Impact Conference. Nice to have you here. With us. Oh, thank you for having me. So tell me a little bit about this. This was a story that we talked about because we've seen tremendous growth in ETFs. And I used to kid with one of my, with our producer, Paul Brennan, back, you know, like, all right, here it is another day and a new ETF is out. Um, the smaller guys, though, are, I think, having a harder time. Tell me what you're seeing, though, from your vantage point. So smaller guys could have a harder time, but there's the new ETF rule that came into play. 
which makes it more cost-effective for smaller guys to get into the ETF space. You won't need exemptive relief going forward if okay. you comply with all of the rules that are out there. So it's going to be easier for the smaller guys to get in. So I think you could see more ETFs from that perspective. But I also think what you're going to see is it's how platforms respond to the, the plethora of ETFs that are going to be coming out and how much access they grant, and that could make it harder on smaller guys. And what about this whole notion of an actively managed ETF? I feel like that's something that we talk a fair amount about, but candidly, I don't totally understand uh, You know, sort of how it works. Help us understand, and especially from an investor, from an individual investor's perspective, what that looks like and what the benefits are. So think of today, we have actively managed ETFs. Fixed income's the biggest portion, but there's been an equity portion for years. Right. That's, been grow that's the fastest growing segment of the ETF space. Now, it's easy to be fast when it's small. But we have these new ETFs that are going to be coming out. Uh, Active Shares is one of them from Presidian. They're semi-transparent. So unlike all of the other ETFs, you can't see the holdings every day. But what we're able to do is, as a you know, sponsor, we'll be able to bring out IP that we've never been able to bring out before. Intellectual in, property? Correct. In an ETF format. Hmm. So if you think about it, we may have a concentrated portfolio that holds 30 securities that we believe is a true alpha generator. But if we did it transparently, somebody could front run the holdings or a free ride or just copy. Mm. And we aren't able to, you know, that's not something the portfolio managers want. And so this new structure will allow us to bring forth products that our clients like into a structure that they prefer. And that, so that's going to lead to more ETFs coming out. And what the other thing it will lead to is a lot of new sponsors coming into the ETF space that weren't there before. So, okay. So give me an example. Can you? Um, so think of it this way. If I, you know, American Century has a, a fund that's got 30 holdings in it today, right? It could be a billion dollars, could be $2 billion, or it could be zero at the moment. If you put that into an ETF and you show that you're trading every day, right, and you're mm -hmm. what it looks like every single day for the holdings, and then all of a sudden it gets to $3 billion in an ETF, and then Apple's your largest holding, and all of a sudden it goes from 3.5 to 2.5, and, and the next day it goes to 175, somebody knows you're selling it. So can they start front-running your trades and predict uh, what's going to happen and impact alpha? Huh. And where you see that a lot is in index products. Right. When you know a rebalance is happening, I mean, so many of the rebalances are so public, right. the actual returns of those get impacted by all the people trading before. So some portfolio managers even trade a month before those happen to try to get ahead of that and retain some of the alpha within there. Wow. Interesting. And so let's talk about, because I know it is top of mind here at this conference and candidly across the world of investing, fees. Yep. Commission-free. What fees? What uh, fees? <laughs> exactly. They're no, on now. No fees to see here. Um, how does that play through in your world? So I think it's, it's actually great. Right, so what you've taken off the table is the decision to buy an ETF because it's commission-free or not commission-free. Right. right, so all ETFs, the starting point is they're liquid. So it doesn't matter how much it trades, it's got liquidity. Then you go to the next step if you're an advisor, right, because if you're an advisor and you're trading for a client, you may actually have to pay $5 for every single account that you have. And if you're doing it in 1,000 accounts, that adds up. So you may restrict your list to commission-free. Now you've opened it up, mm -hmm. and you're really letting the advisor decide on investment merit. What are they trying to accomplish for their clients? Right. What ETF marries to that? And now they don't have to worry about the commission aspect 
they can go, okay, I like this ETF and it works. There's another story that caught my attention. We just got about 45 seconds left here, um, Ed. Um, ETFs about to have a LeBron moment is what we called it. And it's basically looking at China uh, in terms of foreign countries held by U.S. investors uh, through ETFs. China is the third biggest just behind the U.K. So with concerns over kind of human rights and what's going on in Hong Kong, should we, you know, will we see those types of funds under greater scrutiny? Just got about 40 seconds. I mean, you could see those funds under greater scrutiny. But, and I know Trump mentioned if you restrict investment in the past, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and that could hurt some of those funds. But in reality, implementing some of those things, right? If it's an ESG product, they're going to shy away from that. Anyway. But it, it's going to be about the investment. And if the clients know that and they shift away, you could see assets flow from that into something else that might replicate some of those returns. So we could see that movement. You could well. see some for yeah. sure. Okay, Interesting. cool. Great context. As always, Ed Rosenberg, head of ETFs over at American Century Investments here with us at the Charles Schwab Impact Conference in San Diego. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week live from the Charles Schwab Impact Conference. It's the industry's largest gathering of independent financial advisors. This is Bloomberg. No doubt, things are going way too fast. Um, I've been talking about doing this segment for a while. Keeping this up. Yeah, I really have been. Um, our last economic cycle, we all know, ended with a housing bust. The next one may be a crash in the auto industry. Let's figure out what uh, Jeff Kleintop is thinking. He's here with us. He's Chief Global Investment Strategist at Charles Schwab, uh, with us on site at the Schwab Impact Conference. You guys know how to get our attention. <laughs> no, but talk to us a little bit about, I think we are, I feel like this is one of the most hated market cycles that we've seen in a long time, Jeff. But um, you talk about the undoing of it, market as well as economic cycle could be the car industry. Tell us tell us what you're thinking. Yeah, it can be a mistake sometimes to try and focus the in everything that ails the global economy into one thing. But I think if there was one weak point, it is auto sales. That really started the manufacturing slowdown we're seeing around the world. As a matter of fact, ex-autos, manufacturing is actually growing in the U.S., in Germany, Japan, and South Korea. It really is concentrated in auto sales, and it's the one category of consumer spending that's pretty weak right now. And debt delinquencies are rising on auto loans. The terms are extending. How bad is it? piling up. You know, it's nothing like we saw with housing. Uh, nor is it that big of an asset to households right. that it would really cause a deep and prolonged downturn like we saw in 08 or 09. But it certainly is something that hasn't turned around yet and continues to ail the economy. And so when you're doing an analysis like this, what are the data points you're, you're looking for? Because there are a number of entries sort of into the auto sector. You mentioned loans. You mentioned the data that we get from companies themselves. There's also some government data as well. How do you look at it and how do you synthesize it to come up with a, a take like this? Well, taking a look at uh, sort of where, look, the auto supply chain is so broad. Yeah. It covers so many different countries. So looking at some of the things going on with trade right now and imports and exports and watching product categories and how they're moving around. And that means that inventories are, are high. Uh, because they're worried about supply shortages and products and stuff. So you see all that moving through the system. So I'm watching product codes. I guess it started with more of a focus on trade lately. Yeah. And that then filtered into these building inventories. And then that drew my attention to the debt delinquencies and some of the other rising problems. How much too is, you know, we've often talked about, Jeff, um, the sharing economy and that there's a generation coming that don't really care if they own a car. I mean, I look at some of my nieces. I mean, uh, you know, uh, they're in their 20s um, or early 30s and they're like, yeah, you know, it's a car gets me around but it's not like 
I was or, uh, you know, my siblings, when you turned 18, you got a license and you could wait to get a car. So is is that true or but or, or, or is a younger generation, are they still buying cars? Uh, I think that's broadly true that we are seeing a slowdown in the pace of new car acquisition, even in the world's biggest car market, which is China, which is nearly double the size of the U.S. car market. Right. It is slowing, but it's still growing. And what we're seeing with demand for cars is it's fallen. In China, it's down double digits year over year, auto demand is. And that isn't justified by the ride sharing. All right. So let's broaden out a little bit if we can. This is a massive event. Uh, it's got to be fun for you to some extent because you're walking around and, and talk about a lot of data points. I mean, you've got all of these people from different parts of the country, you know, different takes uh, and, and different, you know, approaches, as it were. Help us synthesize what you're hearing and, and maybe what you take away from this when you go back and, and start to put your strategy together. One of the uh biggest bright points and, and points of excitement for advisors here is this rotation we're seeing in the market in the last few months mm -hmm. towards value, towards large cap and international. Generally, they have broadly, globally diversified asset allocations with which they invest their clients' assets. And when you've got one asset class that's been running away with the market for the last 10 years, it feels a little hard to justify that broader approach. Now we're starting to see that shift, which I think is justified by a number of long-term shifts I'm seeing that suggest that this could be with us for a while. I think they're excited about that opportunity to demonstrate the value in portfolios. What's interesting about this market cycle, you've watched a lot. You've seen a lot of cycles. I mean, I think we're all kind of blown away that the expansion is now the longest on record. And we continue to see, despite um, some big macro issues that are out there, we continue to see records, certainly on the U.S. equity averages in particular. So I don't know. What do you find interesting about it? Gosh, negative interest rates. Uh, <laughs> Who'd have thunk, right? Yeah, right. I mean, very unique. And I, I think is the rate environment, are we, is that, has that changed dramatically that we are in this low rate environment for, I don't know, a much longer time than we, I mean, we obviously have been in it much longer than we anticipated, but does it continue a lot longer than in your view? Our view is it would lower for longer. And one of the interesting consequences of low interest rates, we can look to Japan for this. They adopted a zero interest rate policy in 1999, 20 years ago. Right. And Japanese investors, as demographically aged as they are and their need for income is there, they chose to go to stocks for income. They almost wiped out the fixed income in their portfolio and they moved aggressively into equities. That's where they get their yield from. Mm. That might be the sign of the future. It's a big leap for us here in this country. So to yeah. that exact point, do you worry about, because Japan has been, I feel like, this cautionary tale uh, for many people, do you worry about, and this is not an original thought, the, the Japanification of the U.S. market in some ways? I think that uh, you know Japan's living standards have been fine. Equities have done okay in the last 10 years or so. I think the risk is that they run into the wall. I mean, their debt to GDP, their demographics, that they hit right. the wall first, and that maybe that'll be an interesting example right. to the rest of the world. Japan generally owns all of Japan's debt. Right. And so a debt crisis or a currency crisis would be felt largely concentrated within that country mm -hmm. as opposed to a global crisis. But that might be a cautionary tale for the rest of the world. I believe they could hit a wall like that sometime in the next five or ten years, and that might be worth, you know, well, and as you say, the demographics, I think, in Japan are very different than they are here. Although we're seeing States, aging populations, you know, around everywhere. the world. And this Certainly is one of the Europe, stories yeah. we covered in the magazine recently about the importance of immigration, that in order to, you know, you've got a lot of countries that just can't access uh, workers. And so they need the immigrant workforce in order to meet their needs. Right. And so that may be the caution 
cautionary tale from Japan, not necessarily low interest rates, mm. but the implication that what it means for an aging population, the need for income, and this balance of debt to GDP. Got a favorite investment idea right now? I'm thrilled with value, international, and large caps. I think since this inversion of the yield curve, which, by the way, has signaled every shift in style, uh, cap, and geography for the last 50 years, I think it's a sign we're, we're seeing new leadership. Large cap tech? Large cap te- tech, I think, may begin to... Not value, that's for sure. Yeah, yeah but you think it's going to start to underperform. I believe so. All right, yeah. going to leave it there. All right, Jeff Kleintop, Chief Global Investment Strategist at Charles Schwab here at the big party, Schwab Impact Conference in San Diego. You are listening to Bloomberg Business Week live from the Charles Schwab Impact Conference. is the industry's largest gathering of independent financial advisors. Carol? So, Jason, we know registered investment advisors, they're watching rates, they're watching the economy, corporate earnings, watching private and public market valuations. They also need to keep a close watch on the regulatory and policy environment. Well, we caught up with Michael Townsend. He's the vice president of legislative and regulatory affairs at Charles Schwab to talk about just that on site at the Schwab Impact Conference. I feel like this is such an important angle, and we know that what goes on in Washington, we see it day to day, but we do know come November, it will impact the markets. A lot of folks we've been talking to, Michael, say it's too early. How do you look at it? Yeah, I mean, I think it's a little bit too early to make predictions, certainly. Um, But one of the things I try to tell uh, investors, I travel around the country, is so much of what's coming out of Washington is noise. And it's so easy to overreact to every little tweet and everything that comes out. Um, But a lot of it doesn't really affect the markets. The market is not paying attention to every tweet and uh, and that sort of thing. So, but, they, but the market does move on tweets. The market does move on tweets, but it tends to move short term and then it, it goes back to where it was. And uh, I don't think it overreacts to everything. I, I think it reacts a lot to China trade, mm-hmm. uh, stuff like that. I think th- those issues are important and people need to keep focused on that and not get too emotional right. about things. Well, and we do see investors, to your point, reacting to something on China trade, you know, something on, you know, other sort of economic issues. But politically, and and maybe more pointedly, policy-wise and regulatory-wise, we could face a very different environment a year from now, maybe even in the intervening time. And so how do you prioritize for Schwab customers and, and Schwab employees what they should be thinking about? Yeah, I, your point about the regulation is, is very important. We've seen a lot of regulatory action over the last uh, couple of years, and you know, potentially if the White House changes hands, you could see a lot of that undone. And that's the one thing that, you know, really doesn't depend on who controls Congress, uh, because the administration can make those uh, regulatory changes pretty easily and and pretty quickly. So that's definitely something for uh, investors to, uh, to to keep an eye on. Legislatively, on Capitol Hill, there's just not a lot happening um, w- with much speed. And, you know, the Senate just really right. bogs everything down. And so going back to regulatory for just a second, what's the one thing, the one or two things that are top of mind that could really change the business of the people who are here today? Yeah, I think for investment advisors in in particular, and this is a conference filled with investment advisors, you know, they're watching some of the SEC um, regulatory actions. And I I think the SEC is less impacted by the administration. It's a very deliberative process, lots of comment and all that that sort of thing. So, you know, I think investors, uh, for investment advisors in particular, the the new regulations around um, acting in the best interest for broker-dealers and 
not quite a fiduciary duty, uh, whereas investment advisors are uh, subject to a fiduciary duty, that's going to play out and potentially end up in the courts as uh, previous uh, iterations of this have. So. What, what has changed, Michael, under a Trump administration? Because I do understand that there's a lot of things we cover in the headlines, but we also know that there's stuff been going on behind the scenes in his various departments that have been impacting businesses and certainly the markets. Well, first of all, I think the biggest thing is that, that has changed, and I've been in Washington 25 years, and I always say that in Washington, no one ever says anything without a set of talking points and a plan, and a lot of that over the last couple of years has gone out the window, right? right? I mean, the, you know, the, yeah. the five, six, seven things happen every day that five years ago would have been the biggest story of the week, and we all just sort of collectively shrug at it a lot of the time. So I think investors have a really hard time sorting through all the noise and the nonsense and trying to figure out what is worth paying attention to, and that's why we say, you know, go back to the fundamentals. It, it is about earnings. It is about uh, the sort of basic business uh, kinds of things. Yes, China trade is, is particularly important. Whether they get the U.S.-Mexico-Canada trade agreement across the finish line, that's important. Um, those types of things. But a lot of it is, is just, just noise. What's the biggest thing that you think could be changed if the White House goes from President Trump to a Democrat? Uh, well, I think the biggest thing probably depends on, on who controls the Senate, first of all, because if Democrats win the Senate, then you're talking about pretty, potential for pretty significant tax changes. And, you know, I don't think if Elizabeth Warren is president, I don't think she can get everything that she's talking about uh, across the finish line. But I think you're seeing rollback of uh, the higher end uh, tax cuts, potentially rollback of the corporate uh, tax cuts, that sort of thing. I think those are the potential biggest effects. Again, that totally depends on the Senate. And I don't think investors pay enough attention to that battle for the control of the Senate, because that's really what's going to determine whether any of this stuff even has enters the land of plausibility. And so when you also think about more broadly outside of Washington, you know, we had some elections just last night. Uh, Virginia obviously caught a lot of attention, Kentucky as well. Is there anything that happens on the state level that you pay attention to, either from a regulatory perspective or, or a policy perspective? Yeah, sure. First of all, I'll just say, you know, I think there's a little bit of overreaction to what happened last night. Um, the Kentucky governor's situation, um, he was a you know, an incredibly unpopular uh, governor. Right. Um, the Virginia Virginia has been trending purple to blue um, over several elections now. I, I don't think there's a ton to read uh, into that necessarily. Um, but, you know, I do think investors see those headlines and start to think, you know, what is that going to mean for uh, uh, for 2020? So there, there's no question that they, it's going to get a lot of attention. But what's interesting, I know, like even in my town, there was a pushback against Airbnb and right. people being out. And I've seen that across the country. And so there are these smaller issues happening in municipalities and cities and towns around the country that are impacting businesses that kind of push back against the sharing economy. Yeah, I think you're seeing that with uh, Amazon, where, you know, yeah. Amazon getting uh, pushed out of New York and, and that sort of thing. So I think people are watching these these local issues more carefully. All right. And that was our conversation yeah, with Michael, Michael Townsend. Townsend yeah. He is the VP of Legislative and Regulatory Affairs at Charles Schwab. Thanks for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show every weekday at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio.